And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. My fellow Americans, welcome back to the Inspired Service podcast. I'm Noah Scheinbaum, and I'm thrilled to be joined today by Drennan Dudley, who is a professional staff member, Senate Appropriations Committee, and specifically on the Subcommittee on Homeland Security. Drennan's portfolios include disaster relief and now cybersecurity. So we are excited to talk to her about the state of affairs and all of her learnings in nearly 20 years on Capitol Hill. Drennan, welcome to the program. Noah, thank you so much. And thank you for doing this podcast. It's a really important one, and I'm excited to be a part of it. Well, we're excited to have you. There's so much to talk about. Your service has spanned from local to state to the federal level. Before we get into it and and dive into some of your experiences, I want to talk about you a little bit and your motivations to seek out a career in public service. Because we've talked to a number of folks on this on this program. Most people have had you know some in and out. You've been dedicated since day one. <laughs> Can you talk to us a little bit about what what's driven you to be so focused on serving the American public? You know, it's funny. Uh... As I think about that question, I don't think I ever considered doing anything but public service. I come from a long line of public servants, teachers, cops, firefighters. So it's just kind of, I guess, runs in the family, runs, runs in the blood. I do remember early on family stories about my grandmother holding family meetings. She felt it was really important to bring everyone around the table and hear what they had to say. So I learned early on that democracy and governance are beneficial, but only if you participate in it, right? Otherwise, other people are going to make the decision for you. It's your parents or your siblings or whoever else. So you've got to get in there and, uh, you know, make sure your voice is heard. So learn that lesson early on from family members. And, you know, I always thought I was going to be a lawyer and no dis- discredit to any of the lawyers out there. I love them all, work with many of them. But my mom advised me to go talk to people and who were in a job that I thought I really wanted to do and learn if I liked what they do day in and day out. It was honestly some of the best advice and it's led me to a career that I truly do love. So I appreciate you saying focused. It's like, it's a joy to to be doing day to day something that you, that you really like to do. So, you know, I mentioned a lot of the women in my life. I think it's, it is definitely important to give the men in my life credit too. my brother and my dad, both always encouraged me and challenged me and, you know, taught me to use humor in moments, which I think is really important when you're in public service is appropriately use humor, I guess I should say, and also to be humble and kind. I think that's what public service is all about. Humor, especially in some, some difficult circumstances can be the difference between burnout or perspective and level-headedness <laughs> and the ability to keep going. So I appreciate that. Very well said. Very well said. You know, I will also say that part of motivation and inspiration is the people that I work with. It's cool to work on Capitol Hill with people who are just so engaged and smart and motivated, and they really keep you going um, when that humor is not your only survival method. It's also the people that you work with. For sure. Before we get to Capitol Hill, let's let's go back a little bit because I'm. Sure. You went to school in in South Carolina for your undergraduate degree in English and political science, and then you stayed in South Carolina when you were a part of the South Carolina Employment Security Commission. And so there's yeah. something about that that local focus that and that community that 
must have appealed to you. What drew you to participating in that local forum versus hopping straight to, say, Washington? You know, I was living in South Carolina at the time. It's a great state. Really enjoyed my schooling there. And then there's the practical reality of you have to have a job because you're off your parents' dime at that point, hopefully, too, right? I actually interviewed for a job to work in the governor's office in the state of South Carolina and was unsuccessful in securing that job. And they offered me, in lieu of that job, they were like, hey, we have all these other great jobs in the government. How about working in in the Employment Security Commission? And, you know, you look back on these things and it's just so fortunate that 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 happened. I learned so much about how the government can really directly impact people's lives. I mean, Employment Security Commission is a little bit of a nebulous term, but that was the unemployment office. And this was in the 90s when the recession was real and hitting people across the board. And to sit in an office and interview people about whether they were eligible for unemployment claims just really drove home that public service inspiration that I had from from my early years and watching teachers, cops, and firefighters affect people's lives every day. The human impact of all of this is something we're going to come back to, and I think it's going to be a theme for our conversation because I think when people hear Capitol Hill or hear appropriations, it's easy to think that is at such a high level that is so detached from the day-to-day realities of the programs and initiatives that they're funding that unelected bureaucrats in Washington are, are unaware of the communities that, that really need their help. But that's not been your experience. And so I want to I make sure that we touch on that. You took an, an interesting path to get into your first Senate office through the, the Vincent Institute of Government, the Maricopa Association of, of Governments as an environmental planner. What were the threads in those early experiences? Did you know you wanted to get to Capitol Hill or was there a, a good amount of serendipity and just opportunism that happened there? It's such a great question. You know, when you talk to my college roommate, she'll tell you that she always knew. And I always said that I wanted to work on Capitol Hill. I don't remember that being a drive and a motivation. <laughs> I really don't remember it, um, but I ended up here. So there's, there's, there's an element there. Working at both the Institute, the Vincent Institute and Maricopa Association of Governments, again, driven by that, I want to be in touch with the people that you're actually trying to make sure that they get what they need and that you're in service to. Working at the Vincent Institute of Government was part of my graduate school. I was in graduate school there at the time, and it was part of a way to help me pay for school and also learn from one of the neatest professors that I worked for there, James Condell, who dove into environmental projects because he came at it from how are we affecting people's lives through the decisions that we make about, you know, really interesting topics, but not so sexy ones, like where we put all of our trash. And so it was, it was neat to take one of those big issues to drive it down to how it actually affects people was um, something that I definitely gained from, from working with him as a research assistant. And then when, you know, I was getting ready to graduate, knowing that I'd always lived in the Southeast and love that part of the country. And I thought, you know, wouldn't it be cool to pack up my car with my two dogs and drive across the country and do something completely different <laughs> in a completely different environment? And much to my grandmother's chagrin, who was standing in, the, in the, her driveway with tears streaming down her face. When I pulled away, you know, it was, it was sort of a, a life lesson, too, to drive across the country and 
driven by public service do that somewhere else in another part of the country. And it was just a great experience. And it was a, a little bit of a, not that I ever had a problem with independence, as I think my parents will probably tell you, but a little bit of a way to express that independence and, and live somewhere else. So again, just very fortunate to get connected to an organization that really wanted to be connected to the community and make sure that any decisions that were being made had the participation of the people that were going to have to live with those consequences. Absolutely. I'm a big, big time evangelist for driving across the country because there's just <laughs> so much you don't see in an airplane <laughs> and, and, so and the connection to the, the literal land of the United States is, is really important. I think it was so fun. It was a three day trip with two Jack Russells and everything I owned packed into a little Saturn and it was an awesome experience. I hope you journaled so that it can be part of your <laughs> memoirs one day. So talking about doing environmental work in South Carolina, I think if you talk to a lot of um, Northeasterners or West Coasters today, they might not think of South Carolina as kind of a vanguard of environmental protection and, and you know, the, the state that is fighting hardest for it. But it's interesting because you're talking about the impact of environmental policy on people. And so I'm curious to ask you, as you hear this, this debate or this argument about climate science raging today, what is it missing that perhaps doesn't, is it not connected to people impact or, or how do you see that as different when we talk about it at a national federal level versus the work you were doing at that local level? Yeah, I mean, a little bit different time frames, right? Because when we were having the, when I was actually working in that field, um, which is not a field I'm in now, the co people were openly talking about data and facts and working off sort of the same sheet of music, if you will, as we were having these conversations. People had disagreements about which path to take, but the base set of facts were the same that people were operating off of. And I wonder today, again, I'm not involved in that field now, but I wonder today if the conversation isn't harder because people are just disagreeing on even the fundamentals. I have had the opportunity to, to be a, um, a fellow through a, the STENIS program, which is a program here in DC. And we spent a lot of time with my colleagues talking about this. Like what, what can we do as senior staff to make sure that we are all avail ourselves of the same information so that the debate is not about what is true and not true. That's already agreed upon in terms of a set of facts, and then you debate the policy around that. And I think that's part of the struggle for today is that there's just so much disagreement about even the fundamentals that it doesn't even allow for a, a real debate on defining the problem and then finding the solution for it. People can, can often comment on government employees as being bureaucratic and uninformed, but I, I would say the opposite. I mean, most of the people I work with constantly are searching for good information and good data. And and want to have the conversation around defining the problem and then developing a solution to it. And we're just stuck in a place where it, even defining the problems is difficult. So it's about that shared understanding, at least the surface level uh, shared diagnosis before you can start talking about prognosis and what ought to happen. And, and just to tie it back to an, another thing that I think you're highlighting here that's important is having people participate in that. And again, if you're not even having a very clear definition of what the problem is and then figuring out a solution, you lose the ability for people to be able to actually participate in a way that you can make sense of their comments because 
that middle space between problem and solution is so diluted, there's no real way for people to participate and have their voices heard. It's interesting to tie it into your work now because I think you do deal with a portfolio, at least on the disaster side, where your your oversight responsibilities include FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, the National Protection and Programs Directorate, Federal Protective Service, that are so people-focused uh, and where they programs really are judged in success and failure based on their impact on individuals. And it's an interesting contrast between the other side of your portfolio, the cyber portfolio, which is, you know, yes, people are heavily impacted by cyber policy, but it, it seems to be a bit higher level. It seems that we're talking about, you know, national strategy or infrastructure security, and people have almost come to accept this new reality of data breaches and, um, you know, information, cyber theft, uh, and things like that. So it's an interesting tension between something that is so hyper-personal and individual and something that is much higher level. How do you, how do you think about the tension between those two things? Do you see them as different or, or you, do you see kind of the human impact on the cyber side too? That's a great question. You know, there's so many similarities between the two fields, uh, but what you're highlighting is the difference. When, when there is a natural disaster, you can go to a site, you can see the people, you can see where the building used to be and where it may not be anymore. You can see the service disruption um, because maybe the power's not on or, you know, the water isn't flowing. Government institutions are scattered about in tents instead of a brick building. And so it's just a, that physical observation, I think, of something that's been damaged is a lot easier to wrap your mind around than some of the cyber consequences, which I'm not convinced we even know today. I mean, yes, there's a data breach and maybe you've even had your personal identity compromised. That is the most visible thing, but there are a lot of other existential thoughts in the cybersecurity world, like artificial intelligence and how do we apply that to our lives and how comfortable are we applying it to our lives that haven't quite been ferreted out because of exactly, I think, what you're highlighting here, which is that cybersecurity is often done, frankly, in a classified space. And when it's not classified, it's scary computers with ones and zeros that people feel they can't possibly understand unless they have a degree in it. And so we just haven't quite grappled with cybersecurity in a way that I think makes it as concrete as a natural disaster might be. That makes a lot of sense. I think that the the physical manifestations of natural disasters are, whether it's the pictures, this constant kind of video feeds on, on cable news or even online through social media, there's something that triggers kind of the emotion and the demand for a response that may be unique to that problem. And it does seem, as a, again, as an outside observer, that disaster response is one area where there seems to be at least a shred of bipartisanship that's been preserved whether it's the, the California wildfires or the recent the floods now in, in Louisiana, there, there does seem to be appetite for bipartisan action. Has that been your experience? Are we getting the right message on the outside? I think that's right. You know, we've spent $230 billion in disasters since 2005, and that is a lot of money. And it gives people sticker shock on a regular basis. I mean, that's every state, most tribes, every territory since 2005, we have spent disaster relief funds in it to the tune of $230 billion. 
when it hits your state, you realize how critical those dollars are, and very few people have, have not been exposed to that, right? So you kind of feel the sympathy because you understand when other people are going through it. So I, I do think that's right. I think every once in a while, the message starts to stray a little bit on maybe we need to offset disaster spending. Maybe we need to look into ways to curb the spending because it is such sticker shock. But at the end of the day, I think most rally around the fact that the government really governments since the beginning of time have been set up to help people in their time of need collectively. And there's no bigger demonstration of that than during a natural disaster. So how does that actually happen? Because again, sitting armchair quarterbacking at home, it can look like, okay, disaster happens. A lot of people get on the news and make speeches and and tweet about the need to do something. And then, and then the money shows up, but obviously it's a lot more complex than that. When a disaster hits, what actually happens for you and on the Hill? So when a disaster happens, this country's policy is that it gets managed at the lowest level possible until that government is overwhelmed and then it goes to the next layer, right? So that usually starts with a mayor in a city and then it evolves or it ratchets up when the mayor is is overwhelmed and his community and, and systems are overwhelmed. The state chimes in and the governor and all the resources of that state come to bear on the disaster. And then when it's really bad, the federal government participates. And that's when the president makes a disaster declaration. If, you know, the level of damage warrants it, you really still rely on the decision makers at the local level. So often when the president declares a disaster, we look to governors for estimates. How much do you think it's going to cost to make sure every citizen has food, water, shelter? And how much is it going to cost to repair your public buildings? You know, we don't repair the private ones because insurance kicks in there. And actually insurance kicks in for a lot of public facilities too. But but beyond the, the needs that have already been anticipated, how much is it going to cost? And so it can be frustrating for many on Capitol Hill. I mean, I've had members of Congress look at me and be like, well, how much is it going to cost two days after the storm? And we often don't know because we're relying on cost estimates um, from different layers of the government. But we've gotten more and more savvy at this, the more and more disasters that we have. And so we start to collect those details and then put together a piece of legislation based on those estimates through the different government programs that we have to spend funding on. Um, we start making the estimates, adding up, you know, state X, Y, and Z say in total, they need so much funding through the FEMA disaster relief fund and then a different amount through the highway emergency fund. And as you put all those estimates together and they truly are estimates, you add up the math and then you go stand in front of a bunch of members and say, we think we need this much funding. And they quiz you and they test you. And they argue about whether you got it right. And uh, you, you arrive on a number, you draft it into a piece of legislation. And, you know, one of the things I love about my job the most is you can spend a lot of time debating and arguing. 10 minutes later, you, after you've been doing that for, you know, say 36 hours, and sometimes it's around the clock, 36 hours, and you don't, go home and take a shower and brush your teeth and you're with the same colleagues over a period of time that you've been fighting with. You then take a break to eat pizza, which is pretty much a staple on Capitol Hill, and then actually draft the legislation, put pen to paper or keyboard to computer screen, I guess is, is how we would say it now, and draft the legislation that members then review and decide if they want to to pass. It can be a really interesting process to go from that you know period of debating to literally sitting in a room 
looking over a, another staffer's shoulder and saying, oh, no, wait, you got the comma in the wrong place. It needs to go two words over. And then sitting in a room and reading through every single word of that piece of legislation and making sure that it is what you intended can be can sound very tedious after having these big, glorious debates, but it is a necessary part of the job. And sometimes that happens at two o'clock in the morning when you're not as focused as you would like to be on getting the commas in the right spot. <laughs> I can imagine. And it sounds like a far cry from the really long, slow, say budgetary process that when we talked, we talked with one of your colleagues and, and Senate Appropriations, Chip Walgren, a few weeks back. Yes. And uh, Chip taught, you know, explained a little bit about the difference between appropriations and authorizations. But what we didn't do was dive into the different kinds of appropriations bills themselves. And can you explain to us a little bit about the different tools in the appropriations toolbox? Yeah, absolutely. So um, you're right. At the beginning of each calendar years, early in the year, I should say, in February, the president proposes a budget for the sort of steady state government business. And so we get that in February, start to analyze um, what the proposal is, and then make recommendations um, as staff to the members about what the request is versus what we appropriated the year before. And that's, and you start to massage that. So right, the president proposes it in February. You usually have hearings in March, April, May, and after you have those hearings and we do all the staff level briefings, we start to massage all of that information into a draft piece of legislation. And, you know, you can spend time drafting that legislation over, over weeks. And it's very subcommittee driven, right? So we have a chairman and a ranking member of the full committee and then a chairman and a ranking member of the subcommittees. And the actual process of really getting the details in an annual appropriations bill are, are driven by the work of that staff sort of at the subcommittee level. I mean, a disaster supplemental because it crosses so many different programs and so many different subcommittee areas of jurisdiction is often driven by the full committee. And so it is a little bit of a different exercise and a different timing loop because there's sort of that really deliberative process of of the annual appropriations bills and supplemental or emergency spending, also very deliberative, but it's so focused and it's usually very geographically focused and also program focused, but spreads across so many different subcommittees. There really is a different sort of tempo and process for putting together something that a piece of legislation that might be addressing a very urgent need. Yeah, thanks for laying that out for us. And so if your disaster spending portfolio is is more of that just-in-time function, the other side of your portfolio, the cyber component, would seem to be a little bit more steady state. So talk to us, cyber is such an interesting topic right now because, you know, one, obviously it's it's reached a new level of national prominence. And, and when we talk about the need to get talent in government and the need for a new strategy, cyber is always kind of right at the heart of that. And also, I think, you know, the American people, as we mentioned earlier, have really come to see and understand the consequences of, of cyber theft and cyber attacks. Talk to us about the evolution of the cyber portfolio since you took it over in 2007. And what are some of the key parts of that that are interesting or exciting to you right now? The cybersecurity portfolio is is just really interesting. I mean, I regularly am kind of pinching myself when I'm sitting in a room being getting briefings from people who you look at them and you're like, this person understands things that I will, my brain will never fully comprehend because they just think in a way that 
you know, it's, it's just astounding to be in the room with these experts. When I took the portfolio in 2007, we spent, a, through only the Department of Homeland Security, we spent about $92 million a year on cybersecurity. That's not including what the Department of Defense spends on it or the Department of Justice and through and, and the FBI for through investigations and all that. But $92 million for the DHS portfolio meant at that time sort of policy surrounding surrounding cybersecurity, but also information sharing. So, you know, if there were particular pieces of malware um, that we knew were bad, but you found it in in one federal agency like the Department of Agriculture, we would make sure that the Department of Education knew about it. We now spend almost $1.1 billion through the Department of Homeland Security. Obviously, the scale has just increased as we rely on computers more and more, both in our work lives and in government and in our personal lives. So it's, like I said, it's neat to sit in the room with people who talk about terms that DC just, it shocks them, right? When you watch Silicon Valley and, and DC talk to each other, it's like having two different languages being spoken at the same time. So that part of it makes it really fun. Then if you drill down into sort of the, the substance of it all, I mean, a lot of what the Department of Homeland Security does now is actually provides funds so that other federal agencies can protect their networks. And that's an important function. We're debating with ourselves right now whether the Department of Homeland Security continues to provide the, that funding or if um, we put that responsibility back on the individual departments and agencies. And so there's sort of always that big policy, how do we spend money in the best way possible layer of the conversation when we're also just actually trying to figure out how much money does it cost for how many of our federal employees we need to execute the program that we have. There's many layers to figuring out the level of spending, the policy behind the spending, and then trying to keep your eye on the emerging issues of the day, right? Artificial intelligence and how we use artificial intelligence in our government, um, how we protect people's privacy related to machine learning is also, you know, a policy issue that comes into play that we need to be aware of, understand, and talk about so that we don't inadvertently end up paying for something that actually could affect people adversely in the future. So it, it's, it's just a, it's a fascinating area and one that I just, it's an honor to be able to work on. I appreciate the explanation of some of the rigor, especially behind those budgeting numbers. And wow, overseeing a, I guess, more than a tenfold increase in a, in a capability area has got to be just like drinking from a fire hose in terms of trying to get up to speed on what all these different capabilities mean and people are asking for money for left and right. And so I'm sure there's, it's good to hear that those numbers aren't just decided by, I don't know, <laughs> blindfolding yourself and throwing a dart at a dartboard. <laughs> yeah. That's, that is good to hear. I'm sure you know, American people appreciate <laughs> that work on, on both sides. Then, I mean, we've talked about a couple of times now the, how you stay connected to people, but it seems like something on cyber, for example, I mean, is this just happening in back rooms of Capitol Hill? Are there are there opportunities for you all to, for you and your colleagues to actually get out and speak to the people who are kind of doing the the bleeding edge research in this space and who have a you know a bit more of a technical understanding of what's needed or or how are you how are you making sense of all the information that's being thrown at you up there? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, we talked a little bit before about Senator Hollings, who is a senator that I worked for early on in my career. And he had a, a state staffer named Joe Maupin, an amazing man who I think did like three tours in Vietnam and just one of the 
calmest, interesting personalities that you could ever work with. And they both adamantly always said, do not get Potomac fever. The second you think all the answers are coming from inside the beltway is the second that you're not serving people well. And that applies to the disaster portfolio that we talked about before, but also so much the cybersecurity portfolio. I mean, it's important that we talk to industry. They're the ones who are providing a lot of the solutions and quite frankly, probably understand cyber better than anyone, right? Because they're the ones who are creating it and operating it. And so we spend a lot of time talking to the industry. And that's everything from telecommunications companies to really small companies who develop one particular widget that really wards off or finds a particular cybersecurity vulnerability. So we spend a lot of time making sure that we talk to big companies, small companies, medium-sized companies that provide the solutions. We also spend a lot of time with academics, people who have delved into cyber, how it works, cybersecurity, how it can best be applied. And then we spend time with organizations who aren't such big fans of how much technology has been involved in our lives and are concerned about the privacy of individuals and also government tools that are used in the process of delivering federal programs and even state and local programs and how much technology is in them and if it's fair and if it's equitable. And it really is the responsibility of a staffer on the Hill, and I would say any public servant, to make sure that you're listening to all the voices. It's harder in cybersecurity to talk to the individual because there's not a collective group of people, that's when we rely a lot on state and local governments because they're often closer, really try and figure out from them what they're hearing about people's cybersecurity concerns. Law enforcement is another realm of great public servants who are in touch and hear a lot about what people's concerns are. And, And as the phone calls started increasing on things like identity theft, law enforcement were the first ones at the table to, to then relay that information to us about What we need to do, again, back to that, identifying the problem so that we can come up with a solution. A lot of that information rested with law enforcement in the beginning because that's who people call when they're in trouble. So it's it's great that all this information is coming in, that you're talking to industry and to academics. Is this lobbying or is this information gathering? What's the difference? Well, I think if we can solve that problem, then we could also tackle world peace next. But... um, (laughs) In my mind, lobbying is when someone comes in and asks you for something specific, whether it be a policy or a funding level, and there are rules around who can come in and do that. Often, we avail ourselves to people who are, I would put them in the category of consultants, and you know, some people will laugh and the cynics out there will roll their eyes and say they're really the same thing. But I spend a lot of time with people who have no ask of the federal government, who really care about making sure that we get this right. And so we sit at the table with both, right? With people who have a specific ask and we're very transparent about that. One thing I love about the Appropriations Committee is we do things regularly with all sides in the room. And by all sides, I mean Republicans, Democrats, House and Senate. We, we call it the four corners. And when the four corners staffers are sitting in the room, we're all hearing the same thing at the same time from the same people. And it's sort of a check and a balance so that if there is an ask, we understand who that's coming from, what the details are behind it. And then we're adjudicating that amongst ourselves after that. It's important to hear that. It's important for people to ask their government for things, right? Whether, again, it be policy or funding levels. I don't see anything inherently wrong with that. The way, when it becomes a problem is when it's done in a way that's not transparent and not open. And so I really respect the Appropriations Committee mantra that we, we do this together and we hear um, the information at the same time. And then there are also times when you just need information. And it's nice to sit in the room with people who have no agenda except for educating decision makers on 
programs on issues, on problems, on solutions. And so it's, it's both, and they're both important. So Drennan, I know we're, our, our time is running short here. I want to get into a really quick lightning round with you. So four okay. questions, just r- real quick, uh, a couple, a couple seconds answer and, and we'll wrap up. So first question, what does service mean to you? Service means to me listening to what a wide range of issues and wants are from the people. And with all of that information, developing a policy or an action that services the most amount of people in the best way possible. And what's been the highlight of your time in government? Oh gosh, there's so many highlights. Um, I would say the people. You work with really smart, dedicated, responsible staffers. I've worked for some incredible members who often get a bad rap, but care so much about getting it right. The people make all the difference. On the flip side, what's been your lowest point in your, in your time in public service? I mean, besides, you know, pulling a 33-hour shift and only having pizza in your diet for, <laughs> for over 24 hours. That's fun, though. That's good that fun. That is kind of fun. It's a, good, it's a good war story. The thing that's been hardest for me to grapple with is the fact that we spend a lot of time talking about personalities ourselves, you know, whether we even agree on the same set of information, and less time talking about solutions that really help people. And it, it's been frustrating. And, you know, history tells us that th- every country goes through its ups and downs of that. But I, I miss having really substantive debates with people I disagree with. We're, you know, all singing off the same sheet of music, even if, if we're doing it to a different tune. Last question. In spite of that, what motivates you to keep going? I think it goes back to, you know, the, the story I mentioned earlier on about my grandmother holding family meetings. If you're not participating in democracy and in governance, it will not work. That is the great democratic experiment, right? That's the whole experiment of this country. And so if other people will make decisions for you, if you're not a participant in the government, and that's what keeps me going. Thank you, Jen. And I think it's what I appreciate about you is this grounding in why you're doing what you do. And people who have spent some time in Washington, it's not too hard to look around and see the people who are in it for themselves or for power or whatever that may be. But you're grounding in focus on the people and kind of get to ground truth is a refreshing and really optimistic take on public service. And so it's one that I certainly appreciate and, and I imagine our listeners do too. So before I let you go now, I'd, I'd just like to ask if there's any, any final words or, or thoughts or piece of advice you'd like to share with our listeners. To the people who are listening that are considering getting involved in public service, I say do it. We need people who have energy and are enthusiastic. So come join us. It's a fun job. Don't miss out. Well, I appreciate it, Drennan. We hope you keep doing uh, your job for for some time to come because not everyone can pull a (laughs) 33-hour streak and and still have any functioning mind left at the end of it. So uh, I just wanted to, to thank you for spending some time with us today and Thank you for for all that you've done and continue to do for the country. Thank you, Noah. I really appreciate that. And I'll just say again, I I love that you're doing this podcast. What a service to people and really appreciate your questions and your insights as well. So thank you for doing this. Thank you. 